good evening. Sir. Hey, guys, how are you? Very well. Thank you very much for joining us. I know your time is short and uh, my, my friend and colleague Yehuda will be joining us pretty much at the top of the hour as well, I believe. I have three topics which I would really like to go through with you right at the beginning. One is logistics and supplies, then the winter war as such, and um, the current situation. And I would like to start with one quote from uh, what is essentially General Sir John Shea, friend of ours, Amy Fox, has once written about uh, that. And she highlighted that for successful war depends on a knowledge of human nature and how to handle it. Are the Ukrainians handling human nature as best as they can? Are we? I think that the Ukrainian soldiers and Ukrainian people are impressing all of us with how well they have held up under enormous pressure from Russians. Also, obviously, they're suffering casualties every night. People go to bed wondering if a rocket's going to land in their house. Yet, they continue to amaze me with their resilience. I spoke earlier today with a, a Ukrainian officer, a longtime friend of mine. He said, of course, people are, the morale is still good. Of course, they're concerned. They're tired. There's no elation or excitement. They still have the determination and resolve. They understand what's at stake. I think the Ukrainians are doing very well in that regard. Now, I do believe that there's not as much enthusiasm for joining the army as there was maybe a year ago. This is one of the things that the, uh, the ministry and the government are going to have to do to maximize their manpower. I think there's part of this is inefficiency. Part of it is leadership. They have got to get everybody. They have to mobilize the population for this war. I think there's too many mil healthy military-age males walking around in Ukraine, frankly, even in Poland and Romania and Germany. They need to go home. I think this is what General Solution, both in his longer form treatise, as well as in his interview and in the short form opinion piece in The Economist, highlighted as well as one of the key elements. Uh, he identified a few things, but this being able to raise and train people and integrate the new trained people into the existing armed forces seems to be one of the key elements he sees for a successful war in 2020. For sure. Right. Look, I think that General Zeluzhny's piece in The Economist was actually quite good. I know some people grabbed a hold of this word, this stalemate, and, and ran with that, but I think that was more of a translation thing. Number two, what I read was a very cool, sober, clear-eyed professional assessment by a professional soldier, and he laid out what they needed to regain the initiative. That was pretty clear. I, I thought what he laid out, everything that Ukraine needed to do as well as what they needed from us. I, I think he's a remarkable leader. Of course, he's under enormous stress, just like all the other leaders are from the president on down. The United States, Germany, UK, all of the Western countries have got to get behind Ukraine and quit talking about we're with you for as long as it takes, but instead to acknowledge that it is in our interest that Ukraine wins. It's better for us. This is not about Ukraine. This is about all of us. Now, uh, in the coming months, I think Ukrainians, they're not, going to, they're not going to sit in their bunker and wait for it to get warm again. They're going to keep pressure on the Russians. I've written down, Axel, if you'll allow me, there's a handful of specific things that I think Ukrainian forces are going to be doing. Number one, I think they're going to be reconstituting units which have been worn down for months of fighting. And this was a common practice in World War II. 
and it'll be necessary for a renewed offensive. They'll pull units out for a couple of months to, so they can refit, train, get new equipment, et cetera. Secondly, they have got to improve the recruiting system within Ukraine to maximize available manpower. I, I mentioned that already. They've got to increase production of ammunition and weapons within Ukraine. Some Western companies are already there helping. But we know that German aircraft production in World War II actually reached its peak in 1944, despite Allied bombing campaigns. But it's possible that Ukraine can increase its own production even while they are at war. I think they're going to be preparing to employ F-16s probably by the early summer. They'll have pilots trained before then, but it's more than just being able to fly the plane. It's being able to fight it. I think early summer, they'll be ready. They'll be working on that. I think they're going to have to improve air and missile defense, the resilience of the power generation system here over the next couple of months. They're going to need help from us on that. But I think Ukrainians are doing things to make their power generation system more survivable and more resilient. I've been impressed with Ukrainian engineers in that regard. I think they'll continue to sabotage efforts against the energy infrastructure inside Russia and inside Russian-occupied territory. They're going to continue their efforts to make Crimea untenable for Russian forces using drones, especially maritime unmanned uh, systems and other repurposed weapons until we, the West, finally wake up and provide what they need in terms of long-range precision strike. And finally, I think they're going to be working overtime to maintain pressure on the very fragile Russian logistics system. This is a vulnerability that Ukraine will exploit. Russian dependence on unreliable North Korean ammunition is a giveaway of what kind of trouble the Russians have. I would hate to be a Russian private sitting in a trench this winter with a shitty logistics system behind me and knowing that my leadership sees me only as cannon fodder. Thank you very much for giving me those eight points. And the funny part is, of course, you ended right on the issue of logistics and supplies. Very quickly, let, let me highlight this because you touched upon logistics and supplies and the Russian armed forces, Russia um, as a dictatorial system, is now collating out of the panoply of its supplies. North Korea, RT, open. From the uh, People's Republic of China, drones massively and somewhat hidden other assets and technologies. Uh, they supposedly are increasing their own, uh, say, ammunition and shell production as such, but they lag behind. The EU in itself, its weapon system manufacturers, have capacity untouched and they lag behind. The user's supply chain is superb, it's unused, and it's projected as doubtful. What of that is real? What is Russian propaganda? And what is self-defeating narrative on our... I would never trust any number that comes out of Russia, whether it's economic numbers, population numbers, manpower numbers, you name it. Clearly, they do have depth and, and the ability to generate things. But I believe the sanctions have taken a toll on their ability to produce quality, precision weapons. There have been enough reports coming out about the components, what the Ukrainians find when they do the forensics on missiles and rockets that hit apartment buildings. I'm sure everybody listening has seen the reports about the poor quality ammunition coming from North Korea, much so that it's dangerous to the crew if a round explodes inside the howitzer. How many rounds were actually provided? I seriously doubt it's as many as was advertised. I would be surprised if more than 60 or 70% of the ammunition is actually any good. Still, 
It's still tens of thousands of rounds. There's no disputing that. The thing that I cannot counter is there's no doubt that there are thousands of drones. The officer with whom I spoke tonight, he said they've never seen anything like this where these FPV, almost individual, you know, small drones that go after individual soldiers. That's tough. They're going to eventually, and of course, Ukrainians are using them as well. Eventually, as always happens in warfare, they'll come up with better methods for countering these things, whether kinetic or non-kinetic, and for protecting soldiers. It'll get better, but it's going to take some time, as always happens in warfare. Ryan had said that it's extraordinarily difficult to move without being seen or be seen without being hit because of those drones, the drone swarms, this FPV capacity, and that the Russians have developed this, which is why I'd say relates as to Chinese supplies in that regard. In Western Europe, we have massive amount of production facilities for oh so many capital goods. We have capabilities in the automotive and supply chain industry. We have all of this. Are we just lacking the insight that this is in our best interest to mobilize our own production capacity to switch gears and switch equipment and build drone swarms galore? This is inexplicable to me. I, we are failing when it comes to political will. It takes money. Defense industries are not charities. They have thousands of employees and very complex supply chains. You got to put money on it in order to generate more production. We have not yet in the West transitioned to a war footing. I think the Russians and Chinese have. And so the Chinese in particular are watching to see if the United States and our allies, if we have the political will, the industrial capacity, and the military capability to help Ukraine defeat Russia, help Israel defeat Hamas while still pushing Israel to accept a two-state solution, an ability to deter Iran from expansion of the conflict and still have enough to deter China from making a terrible miscalculation. All this has to happen at the same time. We have not yet made the necessary decisions about our industrial capacity to be able to do all that. We're going to be a big trouble here in a couple of years if we don't start doing it now. The potential is there, but we haven't done it. I was thinking about earlier today working on something else, the Second World War. I'm just so tired of hearing so many people, big famous names, talk about that Ukraine needs to negotiate, that need to negotiate for a settlement. And the goodness that Churchill and uh, D. Roosevelt, uh, in the middle of 1942, three years into the Second World War, where there had been nothing but years of disasters for the Allies, thank goodness they did not decide to seek for a negotiated settlement with uh, Hitler or Mussolini or the Emperor of Japan. Instead, they explained to their populations what's at stake. They started uh, expanding defense industry, and then they built up the armies, navies, and air forces that were required to win. We have got to have that moment. We have got to do those things and think strategically about all of these challenges we're facing. They're connected. It's no coincidence the Hamas attack on Israel happening in October. That's not a coincidence. Iran is Russia's only real ally. Russia is Iran's only real ally. There's no doubt in my mind this was done to help take pressure off the Kremlin. Uh, Hamas did in one day what Putin could not do in two years. And that's to make the world forget about Ukraine. Good that you just highlighted the example of Churchill and Russo 
because no. what did they do? What did they commission in 1942? They commissioned the single largest ever Allied landing, or say landing, uh, of troops in Operation Torch in November uh, of 1942, uh, which was a huge gamble. It was a significant risk that had to be done in order to be able to build up force. Let me, if I may, I would like to cycle further onwards to the Winter War for a moment, because as you just said, Putin is gambling on the fact that we are lacking political will, that we're not committing yet, that we're not seeing how much it is in our self-interest. ISW was quoted earlier today as, the Kremlin may have tasked the Russian military with capturing Avdivka and possibly Kupansk before the March 2024 elections. Putin, we shall never forget this, still tries, even in his regime, tries to find acclamation. At the same time, President Zelensky stresses towards the ZSU, both yesterday as well as today, that the troops and Ukraine as such needs to keep momentum and then, even during the winter, must pursue to advance and start to reclaim territory, which it hasn't done during 2023. At the same time, General Zelensky is quoted to highlight that there's comprehensive attacks constantly repelled in the east and north by Russian forces. What's your view of the front line? What can Ukraine achieve in the Northeast and East, and what should it pursue? Look, what I think is happening, these Russian attacks, is an attempt by Russia in their long war of attrition strategy to drag this out, to show that, to convey to all of us that, holy shit, the Russians, they never run out of people, they never run out of ammunition, they can do this forever. They can't. That's the narrative. That's what they want us to see. I do not believe that the Russians have the decisive capabilities to break through, overrun Ukrainian defenses, and start moving towards Kharkiv or Kiev or any of the other large Ukrainian population centers. They don't have that. I think that really their only hope is to drag this out long enough and, and convey a sense of inevitability so that we in the West quit. Every time you see something from the U.S. Congress or somebody talking about, oh, we need to focus on our own borders or there's no way we can defeat Russia, we need to settle. Every time that happens, that is oxygen for the Kremlin. That tells them that their plan is working. These attacks where they're just sacrificing hundreds of soldiers every day. I, I never take the numbers reported at face value. I, I always cut them in half. That's still 500 a day getting killed, not to mention all the vehicles that are lost, they don't care. Putin does not have to, this is a joke about his election. He doesn't have to answer to any journalist. He doesn't have to answer to the Duma. He doesn't have to worry about how his election might turn out. These troops that they're losing, that's just price of doing business. That's why they're able to do what they are doing. I think we in the West, we should be so much more clever aggressive in, in the information space of trying to change that narrative, to somehow reach Russians about what's really going on and undermine at least a little bit some of their support that he seems to have back there. That's not relevant. Yehuda, yeah. Thank you. Welcome. Thanks. Nice seeing you again. Just a quick point. We called it, a lot of people called it out here. Even as early as last year, Putin, when required or if required, will be exporting this conflict. One of the places he'll export it to is the Middle East because it's so easy to do. Now that he's done it, you had a lot of really excellent statements from European, EU, NATO leaders, American, that the, this issue with Israel and Hamas will not 
deter or stop support for Ukraine. What, what went wrong? Because it sounded so good at the beginning as just politicking. I think that we were slow to connect the dots that what Hamas is doing in it against Israel is it is only possible because of Iranian support and that we actually can help Israel not only by providing them with capabilities, but by helping Ukraine defeat Russia so that Iran loses their best and only true ally. I think Iran is the center of gravity in all of this. Now, because Iran and Hamas knew that Israel would react strongly, the way they launched their attack on 7 October was so horrific. This was not your ordinary terrorist attack where they just shoot a bunch of people or destroy a building or blow up a bus or something like that. This was crafted, designed to elicit the most horrible emotional reaction from the Israelis as possible. And it worked. That's what got everybody's attention, including the West and the United States. And we immediately all shifted our attention there. That, that, sh that would not have happened if our leadership in all of our countries had already made the clear commitment to the victory of Ukraine, that recognizing that this is in our best interest. Think about it. Go back to World War II one more time. Half of America had no desire to get in that war. A very large part did. No desire. To, this is Europe's problem. We've already done this. We're not doing this again. Then, of course, Pearl Harbor happens. As the Japanese attack us, we declare war on them, but also on Germany and Italy. It was the leadership in the White House, working with our British allies, to recognize, okay, we have to think strategically. We needed an industrial base. We got to build up armies, navies, and air forces to address this entire problem. Because what's at stake is not Japan capturing uh, oil resources in, in the East. It's about fascist governments attacking what we care about. That level of strategic thinking, that's what we need right now. So if you ask, that's a long way of answering what happened. We are still not thinking strategically. We're thinking somehow that Russia can be dealt with, can be managed. Hamas is just a terrorist organization. We're still tiptoeing around what needs to get the hoodies and launching missiles against U.S. and French ships. What the hell's going on? We, we have got to get things strategically. Of course, that means that we've got to be stronger at home. And unfortunately, all the stuff that we care about at home is under enormous pressure as well. All right, no technology, no army, and no amount of money can underpin success in an endeavor if the leaders of that endeavor and citizens of democracies lack will. It seems that the state is still true because we haven't yet formulated that will. Gentlemen, I would like to, before we go further back into this, I have questions from our audience as well. I would like to get to very briefly, Hassan and Crimea. There is a lack of bridging and ferry equipment. The CSU still doesn't have long-range strike capacity. There were just a few, maybe 12, maybe 15 attackers delivered. We do not know. They can't push the Russian rockets, RT and rotor bases back as much as they should. They can't target the high-value targets. It's winter. They couldn't force the Russians to realign the front line whilst they can still threat mines. How do you see that part of the front line? The view, what's the view to get in Crimea? Here in my last six minutes, I guarantee you, Russian soldiers are suffering from this cold weather a lot more than Ukrainian soldiers are. Every time I talk to Ukrainians, they say that, yes, of course, it's freaking cold, 
but they have plenty of cold weather kit thanks to friends, their Canadian friends, Scandinavian friends, and others who have provided it. And the Russians are depending on a, a much more fragile logistics system. The Ukrainians will, will be fine in terms of being able to operate in the cold weather. Do they have enough ammunition? That's going to be the key. At what point will they be able to regain the initiative? I'm not certain about what happens to the soldiers that are on the left bank of the Dnipro. This is a bridgehead, several square kilometers. The Russians have not been able to dislodge it. The Ukrainians would have obviously understood that they were taking a risk by putting them there, but I don't think that they're going to want to give that up. I, I could imagine that um, if they're able to bring across um, some long-range precision weapons, they can reach further towards Crimea. They'll do it. Ukrainians have proven the concept of using long-range precision strike to make Crimea untenable with just three, with just three storm shadows. The commander of the Black Sea Fleet realized he had to start moving some of his fleet out of there. About a third, according to my Ukrainian naval expert, about a third of the Black Sea Fleet has moved out of Sevastopol after the dry dock and the headquarters were hit and severely damaged by those three storm shadows. Imagine if they had 30 or 40 or 50 of those things, what they could be doing to Air Force, Navy, and logistics in Crimea. I think they're going to try and do what they can with what they have, repurposed uh, weapons, uh, probably a lot more uh, work with maritime unmanned systems that will uh, attempt to make Crimea untenable for Russian forces, I think there's probably a lot more sabotage type things going on there than, than we read about. We have the hands up from our audience. Let's go to David, James, and Mark's hand up and then Cece. I can, uh, I've only yeah, got four uh, minutes. Actually, I'm serious. I know. Let's do this very quickly. David, shoot. Just a quick question. General, big fan. Thank you for your service as a military brat. I, I appreciate all that you do and spending time here. Quick questions, just basically with respect to what they have. I understand logistics is your sort of forte, but could you speak to a little bit about and name some names as to why we're not providing the top of the top, the F-15s, Apaches, Blackhawks, Little Birds, and we really go after these SOBs? Okay. Thank you. It all stems from the fact that we haven't declared what our strategic objective is. When you don't have a clearly defined objective, it's difficult to have a good policy and decisions of those kind of capabilities or policy decisions because the administration, despite all the incredible good things that they have done, you never hear the president or the secretary talk about, we want Ukraine to win. Unfortunately, and I can only draw this conclusion based on what I see happening and what I hear, they have decided that the objective, without saying it, is to put Ukraine in a good place for negotiation. That means they're not going to give them the attackums that I think they need or accelerate the deployment of F-16s, all these things that would enable Ukraine to be successful, to actually win. I think at this point, uh, even though the majority of Congress and the majority of American people support Ukraine, the administration is not willing to do it. I can only speculate why that is. That part of it, of course, there's concern about escalation. There's got to be a political dimension to it, but I just don't know. That's, it stems from the fact that we don't have a clearly defined objective. All righty. Absolutely. Yeah. It's interesting that we still don't have that clearly defined uh, objective, given the fact that we're now at the end of 2020. James. Thank you for taking my call. How, how can you say, General uh, Hodges, that we need to define 
uh, victory for Ukraine isn't the point that Ukraine defines victory. I think that Biden's going to have a justification for a call up for mobilization, which I think is wise. I think the best thing is to explain the actual risks and the lack of, of victory here in the long run spells huge disaster. There's only a, a small amount of time to do that. But he also has to call on people to join the military, especially the left. He's got to say this is about democracy. This is about he's going to have to explain the genocide. <laughs> people. Thank you. OK, now, great question. Look, um, not asking for a mobilization of American forces, talking about a mobilization of American defense industry. The Ukrainians are not asking for a single soldier. They, they don't want American troops, British troops, German troops. They need long range weapons that will enable them to finish the job, to get the job done. I think that uh, the definition of victory, whenever I ask somebody, a, a senior person at the White House, I said, why, why don't you guys want Ukraine to win? They will say, it's up to Ukraine to define what winning is. And Ukraine has said it dozens of times. It's about ejecting the Russians back to the 1991 borders, uh, bring home the 20,000 Ukrainian children who have been kidnapped and deported, hold Russian war criminals accountable for their war crimes, and then some sort of a security arrangement uh, for Ukraine until they're able to join NATO. That's been very clear from the start, from the Ukrainian perspective. I think those define what our objectives should be as well. The president and the Congress have got to explain to American voters that this is in our interest that this happens. American prosperity depends on European prosperity. European prosperity depends on European security and stability. Russia's attack on Ukraine has disrupted energy supplies, food supplies, and put 5 million Ukrainian refugees in Europe. All of this has affected our prosperity. It's also to our advantage that Ukraine is successful because the Chinese are watching. They're looking to see, do we have the will, capability, and capacity to do all this? If we don't, if we can't show that we have it, then I think the risk of them making a terrible miscalculation goes up. And finally, all you have to do is listen to Putin and Lavrov. What do they say? Moldova and then NATO countries are next. If they're successful, if they see that we're not willing to stop them in Ukraine, then they're not going to stop. They say it. There, there's no mystery here. If that happens, then the United States is going to be involved in a conflict. Not asking for a single soldier. But we should be doing all we can to give Ukraine what they need so they win. Guys, I apologize for having to drop, but I really appreciate the opportunity. I love coming on this program. Ben, thank you very much for being with us. Very much appreciate. Please do us one favor. Come back soon. Okay. Merry Christmas to all of you. Merry Christmas. Everybody, this was saying the adroit and crisp and clear update from General Ben Hodges, just as promised. We're very glad that he had time in his uh, staccato schedule to come back to tell us what is needed. I think that we all know it. We have to say Ukraine must win, will win, because we will help it. And therefore, we defend our own.